What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Monkey Finance Show podcast. And in today's episode, we have a very special guest. We're bringing on our first ever guest to the Monkey Finance Show podcast. Today, we're going to be talking to Matt. Matt has a very interesting story as far as student loan uh, debt repayment or student loan forgiveness. So I definitely want to tear uh, into that and find out what that strategy is. But uh, we're going to talk investing. We're going to talk about student loans. And before further ado, let's go ahead and bring Matt in. So Matt, welcome to the Monkey Finance Show podcast, your first ever guest. I'm honored to have you. How are you doing today? Monkey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's been great. I've been following your channel for quite a while, and I'm really happy to uh, to kind of discuss these things and uh, see what kind of information we can we can bring to the masses here. Absolutely, I love it. So, uh, just to get started, uh, we'll probably keep this to about a 45 to an hour uh, long episode. But if you want to do a sort of a soft introduction, tell us about yourself and uh, sort of your your journey on how you became interested in personal finances or in investing. Sure. Um, so I'll tell you basically my introduction. I'm a 36 year old guy. Uh, I worked in a high. I work in a high cost of living state, um, and I'm a physician. I work in a hospital, um, so I have a fairly decent income. And I had a lot of stool, uh, school debt along the way um, uh, in the, within that journey. Uh, I could do consider myself a millennial, and millennial to me means if you grew up in America, I think it's the people who don't remember uh, the Columbia shuttle disaster, but do remember 9-11. And I think our generation of folks had these touchstone or milestone markers and kind of what was going on in the financial world as we grew up. And it shaped the way I look at money. Um, you know, I can remember as a teenager, uh, kind of what happened in the dot-com era and, you know, the boom there and hearing about Enron on the new, I distinctly remember about hearing, on, hearing about Enron on Nickelodeon. Like I did, like this is very, very much a thing that I have in my memory. Um, so I just had this, always had this idea that there was these people out there that just had all this money and were wheeling and dealing and, and doing all these sorts of things that, that was kind of beyond me um, that I couldn't touch, like somehow was inaccessible. And then as I finally started to kind of poke my head out and kind of explore the world in 2008, the uh, housing uh, crisis happened. And as far as I can tell, reading from, from the news and kind of my impression at the time, was that, you know, this, the game was rigged. Um, there, were, there was this game being played that the normal person didn't have access to. And when it came down to it, you know, we got screwed and, and Wall Street got money. Um, and that's kind of how I thought of things for a really long time um, until the last, last few years uh, when I started to educate myself more and have the uh, time and, uh, frankly, the ability uh, to, to start uh, becoming an investor. So th things have changed a little bit, but that kind of provides the background of what where I was coming from when I first got into investing. Yeah. And I think uh, uh, while we're kind of similar in age, I think you're a few years older than me, but uh, 2008, 2009 was sort of a time that I was a freshman in college. And I can remember that time as well. And thinking to myself, here I am, you know, paying uh, for this college degree. And I hear that out in the real world, people are losing their jobs left and right and sort of, you know, scared me. I didn't know once I graduated in 2012, uh, sort of what was gonna, what was gonna happen. So it's kind of interesting, you know, you mentioned that time, even you were probably, uh, when you mentioned the dot com bubble, you were around, or at least you knew what was going on there. I was uh, only, I think, 10 or 11 years old, then. So I didn't mm -hmm. really grasp 
the whole idea of uh, of the stock market back then. But it's interesting that you have two eras now or two uh, decades of where you actually remember uh, certain events that happened uh, that are kind of shifted your thinking. So that's pretty cool. I did not know that. Um, now, as you mentioned, in the last couple of years, this is sort of how you started to uh, do your own research. How did you come about uh, first of all, when you started to do your research, what did you research? And then how did you come about finding me of all people, a very small YouTube channel uh, when it comes to the world of investing? Yeah. So like I said, about two, three years ago, I, you know, my financial situation changed and I had some expendable income and I, and I, people will always tell you that you should invest your money, but that that's it. Like that's the advice is just like invest your money. And, um, you know, I thought if there's a, rich person that knows what to do and I can give my money to them. Maybe they would know what to do. And then, you know, you get a hold of certain websites and social media places and Reddit and Motley Fool and these sorts of things. And it gets in your head that you can figure this out, that you somehow can, can beat the game. Um, I always had a hev heavy skepticism to that. So I thought instead what I needed to do was I wasn't going to be able to pick the winners and losers of stocks that are already established, but maybe if I pick something that wasn't established yet, um, and that existed mostly in cryptocurrency, and I got kind of addicted to the crypto game um, and and that, and then uh, I got the idea that, and I still have this belief. I'm this if I invest in any individual stocks or sector funds, it's all within um, within marijuana section, and that is because I truly believe that there's going to be a, a, a a paradigm shift federally about legalization and, and um, you know, the, the, the more act and the safe banking act, um, which are kind of have been fluttering through Congress and Senate uh, for the past several years. And eventually when that happens, there's going to be a, a, a whole new section uh, kind of opened up financially. So I thought I can do a lot of marijuana stocks. So as you might guess, those things didn't all work out very well. Well, they did um, at one point, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, here, here's the thing, and Mucky, I, I don't have to tell, tell you this, but it, it doesn't matter that it does well because knowing where the bottom is or even getting in the bottom is only half the challenge. You also have to figure out where the top is. So you've got to time it both ways. Doing it only half the time doesn't earn you enough money. Like it doesn't work. So you've got to get it right both times. And that was that was my challenge. I, I, I sometimes I would be too conservative and sometimes too aggressive. Um, and I'd spend all this time and energy trying to figure this out, like on the way in and on the way out. And it's hard. It's really hard. And so, again, I'm going to go back to this kind of skepticism I had of the of of the market. I knew there were these people who spent their lives studying this, that they had access to all the newest data and all the fastest computers and everything else. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I have to beat them. <laughs> like, I have to beat that. Um, so I just got to, I, I just got this in my head. Like there's gotta be a better way. And then the going to be the third milestone, um, here recently was, uh, the start of coronavirus. And I don't know if you remember, but there was a lot of issues with, um, people, uh, Senate and, 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 and Congress, uh, people, uh, who effectively made money, uh, because they knew the crash was going to happen. Yeah. And that was when it, it was, it was a signal to me that I needed to change the way that I was approaching this because, there was no way that I was going to have access to that kind of that level of information. And if I don't know that there's going to be this, you know, people get like weeks or a month or so advance notice of something as big as COVID. I was like, there's no way this is fair. I got to figure this out. So I took some time to kind of uh, search different ways. I ended up reading a lot of Investopedia um, articles. Investopedia eventually led me to the Bogleheads form, which 
as much as great as a resource it is, it's dense to go into as someone who doesn't know anything. Um, there's not a lot of good introduction except for the Vestapedia articles on Vogelhead. And it's almost like everything that's been discussed has already been discussed. So every time you see a new post, it's like, oh, see this post from six years ago, we covered this topic already. <laughs> so it's hard. Um, anyway, so that the Bogleheads kind of got me into the idea of index investing. My 401k is handled through the Fidelity brokerage. I was kind of Googling Fidelity and index investing and those sorts of things. Um, and that actually led me to another YouTube channel, which I won't mention. Um, but ultimately on that, like suggested one was one of your videos. And that's what that's, you know, when I, when I started watching, watching your videos, I was, you know, it was mostly like, this is, this is what I'm, this is what I was looking for. And the, your discussions led me to other things. A lot of Jack Bogle's work, um, more kind of focused on what I, what, how I was going to approach it. And it really is a good, good fit for, for me, given everything that I just discussed. That's very interesting. So what I got from this is you try to venture out on your own first with uh, cryptocurrencies, which was, I mean, you were ahead of your time back then. I kind of was on that boat with you. I think I started, I did my first investment in like 2018. Um, and then you did the, uh, the MJ sector and then you realized, well, you know, timing is everything in these things and you have a full-time job and you don't have time to sit around and try to figure out the best entries or exits. And neither do most of us, myself included, but not just that you don't have the knowledge or the inside information, or you don't have the, the systems in place to be able to do it successfully or with any type of probability that would lead you to say, okay, this is a safe investment that can help me build wealth. So that's very interesting. I think we all uh, as index investors reach that point. I did do a lot of speculative stuff back in 2018 and, and it helped me understand that I can't do this. It's at least not successfully. I can get lucky. I can, you know, time the perfect buying opportunity. And then I'm stuck holding probably to well past the point I should have sold. And I'm stuck holding all the way back to where I bought in. And then what do I do? Right. So uh, that's very yeah. interesting that you share that. And I think a lot of index investors go through that uh, sort of through the, throughout their investing career, they might get into investments because whatever they saw on Monthly Fool or whatever the online websites are. And then you kind of go from that point to trying it on your, on your own and then you embrace indexing. So very cool. Also, big plug to the Bogleheads forum. Uh, I, was, uh, I was a contributor on there as well myself. I don't anymore for the same reasons that you talk about. I think um, that forum is, is very good, but at the same time, it's uh, really just a bunch of recycled material uh, that uh, sort of, like you said, updates by see this thread from, you know, 2014 when we talked about uh, total stock market or total international total bond. So uh, very interesting. And then even the, the fact that the YouTube algorithm worked so well that that uh, you found me through another channel is, is making me really happy because I didn't, uh, I know my, my channel is very small and I know I'm just a small fish in a big pond, but I didn't know that, you know, uh, YouTube is pushing at least my work to uh, to other uh, through other channels and uh, recommendations and such like that. So that's very uh, interesting and eye opening for me. So let's go from the point that now here you are. You've embraced index funds, um, or at least you've embraced a, a pa more passive approach to investing. Um, do you feel comfortable sharing what uh, your 
and this is just for you, not financial advice, of course, and to all of our listeners that are listening, uh, you guys know I don't, you know, recommend stuff to you. I just show you what I do. Uh, but Matt, do you want to share sort of what uh, index funds, you can give names or you can give asset classes, but sort of what you what you base your strategy off of after you uh, you kind of got all this newfound knowledge? Yeah, so I knew that... Uh... I, the majority of my of my holdings are in some sort of large cap blend, um, and that mostly is because of how my four uh, one oh sorry four hundred three b is structured. Is although the uh, management that the brokerage is Fidelity, I only have access to Vanguard funds, which is kind of interesting. So I hold Vanguard funds in a Fidelity account. I don't. I can't access Fidelity funds. Wow. Um, so uh, VINIX, uh, which is their like institutional shares, that's basically tracks the S&P 500. It's, it's like the ETF VOO. Um, I know that there's another mutual fund, the Admiral shares one. I can't remember what that one is. Uh, and then in my accounts that I can hold Fidelity funds, um, Feezy Rocks, the, the zero um, total market fund. Those two, and basically the total, total market fund, because it's cap weighted, I think is probably represents like a small-ish large cap blend. Um, so I think of them as functionally the same thing. I think they're probably going to give me the same kinds of returns. Um, and that's, that represents about 60% of my uh, equity investments. Uh, 100% of my, what's, what is in my broth uh, for the last two years, because I started investing when you could still put in for the previous uh, years, are in the... Um, uh, zero international uh, fund. And then the rest of it is in uh, small cap. So it's it's basically like a 60-20-20. Um, it might actually end up being uh, 60, like 15 to the international and 25 to, to small cap value. But that's, that's basically where, where it's been. All of my investments into like marijuana ETFs and things like that, I've just left alone. Um, they still represent some some percentage, but not a lot. Um, and I actually have like one or two individual um, MJ companies that I've invested in. But again, I'm not putting any new money into them. I'm just kind of holding them uh, for at least a year. You know, maybe we'll see what next midterm election cycle brings. And hopefully I can make some money off of them. Yeah, I mean, you never know. Uh, I think that's a good strategy with those. Just hold them now. I mean, if you already got them, you got them. Uh, there's no point of uh, getting rid of them. But that's interesting. So you're you're doing a little bit of a... Uh, of a monkey three strategy there, but you're using a sort of different accounts uh, to accomplish it. So uh, you got your large blend in your 401k. So that's primarily what your 401k is in, or your 403b, I'm sorry. Um, and then, you know, you're using the zero funds in, in, in your Roth. Um, so you're coming to, a, a, as a monkey three strategy, you're looking at it from all of your accounts combined, uh, they're coming out to be about uh, 60, 15, 25. So that's interesting. I, I like that idea because then you can, one, you can easily uh, uh, rebalance. It's much easier to rebalance, I think, when you only have a, a small amount of funds versus if uh, you're kind of doing this in every account. And I've showed you in my Fidelity portfolios, when I have three funds in my Roth and three funds in my traditional, when I then go to rebalance, I have to get into each one of those accounts individually and rebalance the, all three of those funds in each account. So I've just created an extra amount of work for myself versus if I would have just put, say, my entire Roth in in, in small cap value, my ent entire traditional in international and held my entire 401k like I do in FSKX, 
I could have created the same strategy. So that's an interesting take. And I really like that. Um, the other thing uh, that I want to spend the majority of this time talking about, at least the rest of the podcast, is sort of uh, one, uh, schooling and student loans. And two, um, I know you have a really interesting story to share, and we're going to make this the bulk of the podcast, but uh, trying to get your student loans forgiven. So uh, let's just start off. I'll, I'll share my story, and then I'll let you kind of get in, into into yours, because yours is uh, definitely a lot more impressive than mine. So when I went to school in, in, in college in 2008, uh, tuition was pretty cheap. I mean, not that cheap, but I went to a local state school and I paid, I don't know, 6000 a semester. Um, I also worked part time and my parents helped chip in. And, uh, you know, I went uh, basically through school debt free. Now, with my wife, on the other hand, she went to a private school and uh, she had a, I think her tuition was like 50000 a year or something like that. So she graduated with student loans. And those student loans from the time she graduated till 2017 were like the biggest um, stress in our relationship, in our life, really, because they kind of hovered around uh, above us and we didn't know how to tackle them until, you know, I decided to get really angry and start the uh, Dave Ramsey plan and, and get rid of them. So the, the approach I took was basically cut all my living expenses to nothing and, and live basically um, as if uh, I was making 20000 a year and applied every other working dollar to paying off the debt. And of course, if, if you know the story successfully, I did in, in 2019, I paid off all those uh, student loans and some other consumer debt. And it, it was very liberating, right? That big cloud above me just lifted and I was like, oh my God, I'm free. Um, so that's the way I went about it. And that's really the way I've been recommending for people that ask me about student loans or really any kinds of debts. I say, just attack it, get rid of it, right? But that not, might not be the smartest way because what, what in the short conversation I've had with you about your plan, I'm really intrigued because first of all, uh, you have, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you, you said it was about $300,000 worth of student loans that you're working on getting forgiven. So I'm just thinking in my head when we paid off the 50,000 and it took me a year, um, if I had this 300,000 and I plowed and lived basically on 20,000 for six years, I'd have it paid off. But man, six years is a long time. So share about, first of all, if, if my numbers are right of what we discussed and then what is the plan and how people can uh, sort of uh, uh, utilize this plan to help them get their student loans forgiven. Yeah. So uh, first off, just a caveat, everything that I'm going to be discussing is about federal student loans. So if you have any private loans or, or other, otherwise, you know, getting those paid off, I think is always going to be recommended. Um, what I'm talking about are things that are backed by the, that were given by the, the U.S. government. So you have to go through this. And if anybody's gone through college, you've certainly done this, where you do this application for an for financial need, also known as FAFSA, um, and you get uh, uh, student loans backed by backed by the government. Uh, there is a program um, called Public Student Loan Forgiveness, PSLF, uh, and PSLF was signed into law in 2007 under George W. Bush. And basically, what it was trying to do was incentivize folks who were college educated to go into uh, government uh, nonprofits, uh, certain other calling kind of qualifying employers who they themselves may not be able to pay the kind of compensation um, that they, they might otherwise uh, demand, but the incentive would be you could eventually get your, your 
loans forgiven. Now, it doesn't just work where you start working and then that's it. What you have to do is you have to make 10 years, that is to say 120 monthly payments of what's called qualifying payments. And they do this based on your income, income-based repayment. So you have to, every year, you, you, you know, you file your taxes, you tell the government how much money you're making, and then they put it through this algorithm and they tell you how much of that, um, how much you would have to pay in order to make a, qual uh, a qualifying uh, payment more one, per month. Once you accrue 120 of these, there's like a progress bar, there's literally a progress bar on a website on, the, on fedloan.gov. Um, once you get to 120, it just goes to zero. Uh, the government will pay the pay the remainder. The caveat here is that that um, forgiveness itself, as of right now, is taxable. Mm -hmm. um, so there's been stories on news uh, on the news about uh, a guy who attended, I think it was UCLA, and it was some sort of some some sort of state school in California, where he did both a medicine and then he went to a dentistry school and he had forgiven like 1.5 million dollars after he was all done with 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 all of his training, wow. um, and owed like close to 300 thousand dollars in one year because all that's taxable. <laughs> um, anyhow, so uh, I want to say that you're right. I I currently owe the U.S. government $308,000 and some change, you know, at that point, it's all the same. So $300,000. Um, I am not planning on paying it. I'm planning on paying as very, as very little as I possibly can. I do work for a nonprofit hospital. Uh, and every year I have to submit that I've worked there and then they'll retroactively count my 12 months of qualifying payments. Currently, um, because of COVID, pay payments are $0. That's zero, $0 at zero interest. So since uh, April um, 2020, there has been no uh, payments made, but yet the, the, the count still goes on. Wow. So I'm at 67 months now. So once I get to 100, 120, so I'm more than halfway there, um, then it'll just, it'll just go away. And that's my, that's my plan. Now, okay, so that's very, first of all, there's, a, I, I got a few questions, but that's very sure. interesting too, because um, some of the advice I've given is now that, uh, because I do run a financial coaching business, uh, I don't do investing in my business. I do about paying off debt and, 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 and saving money. But some of the advice that I've given clients is now that uh, your student loans are at uh, zero interest and they're basically not counting against you, the interest is you should you know, be attacking them, but you've used a different strategy, which almost is counterintuitive to everything that I've learned and given in advice, and that is not to pay them um, while it's still counting towards that 120 month uh, progress bar. So you basically got a cheat code here with COVID for the last, what now, 14 months of not making one payment, but still working towards uh, the repayment. So that's huge, something I didn't know. Yeah, about. I, I want this number to be as close to 300 at 120 months as I possibly can. Okay. I want, I want to pay nothing. <laughs> Optimize it. Opti I mean, I'm with yeah. you. Why? I, you know, I hate fees and I hate stuff. I uh, hate paying anything extra that I don't have to. So why not optimize it? Here's my question though. So, and again, I'm completely new to this. I will definitely be doing more research because this could be used as a tool. Um, but let's say you leave your current employer because you mentioned it's sort of retroactive. So you make the 12 month payments and then you submit uh, the paperwork, uh, as far as this is where I worked, what would happen if you left your employer? Um, and then are you basically stuck working for that type of, uh, employer or can you leave to go work for other employers? Can you kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, the, the short answer to your question is yes, you are stuck. 
um, the qualifying payments when you leave when you leave a qualifying employer, those payments uh, no longer count. However, if you were to go back to another employer, all that time that you uh, paid on the original one before you left goes back up again. So I'm currently at 67 months. Let's just say right now I was to leave, um, go to some kind of private practice, and then in a year or two come back, then I start at 67 again, and the, the race is to, to, to 120. But the, the, whole, the whole purpose of these sorts of things is to say, um, it, I have no real incentive to go to a private practice uh, unless that private practice is going to pay me more than the loan forgiveness. So it's got to be over the amount of time more than the amount of money that you have that you have left. And s- secondly, I mean, I, I, I work at work in a hospital and I'm always going to work in a hospital based practice. Having a non nonprofit hospital is not particularly difficult. What I mean by that is most kind of inner city hospitals are are are, are nonprofit. The big name hospitals that you can think of, uh, Mayo Clinic, uh, Cleveland Clinic, those sorts of things. Those, those are nonprofits too, even though they have like gold plated elevators and things. Um, so it's 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 easy, uh, you know, to to find work, the kind of work that I want to do that's fulfilling both from a personal and professional compensation standpoint um, that can get me qualifying payments. Gotcha. Very interesting. So, I mean, yeah, that's another thing I didn't know, which actually works in your benefit almost. I mean, if, 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 if a private practice is willing to dangle, I don't know, an extra hundred K, I don't know if this is possible in your field, but I'm just uh, sort of making stuff up. But if they're willing to dangle it, you can kind of jump back and forth and maybe take, take more money when it's available. You are, you are exactly right. Loan, right. loan forgiveness is definitely a thing and loan, loan forgiveness. Uh, there's even complicated ways that They'll structure loan forgiveness where they'll say, "Okay, we'll give you a hundred thousand, but it's you know twenty thousand for the first year, um, forty thousand uh, the next year, and then forty thousand for the third year." So, like you, that's, it tries to incentivize you to to stay uh, longer for the for the contract. So, you, but certainly, yes, there are there are things um, uh, for loan forgiveness to try to get you to a, a a different different kind of practice setting. I gotcha. Okay, very interesting, and that's again. This is something why I like to listen to different points of view, um, even, you know, sometimes I might not agree with him, but, you know, being a, a Dave Ramsey follower and kind of, I think he gave a statistic that like there's been 97 loans forgiven or something. I never verified. Yeah, that. It's really it low. It's really low. Like, oh, That's okay. the other thing too. Yeah. It's, it's the, the, the success rate is very, very low and mostly because people get um, tripped up and trying to make sure that their, that their months count. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you probably know, there are multiple servicers for federal loans. Uh, Nelnet is one of the biggest ones, but Nelnet does not handle the PSLF. You have to move them all to fed loans, which is a bear. Like it's, it's really not fun. No. Um, it's like 50 thing that, <laughs> there's countless <laughs> of loans. Yeah. And then, um, another thing is when you start your, um, loan repayment plans on income-based repayment, uh, it defaults to the last day of the month as the payment date. However, let's just say, I think it was April this year, um, where the last day of the month is on a Friday. So the your bank initiates the withdrawal, but the money doesn't actually get into Fed loan to the first of the next month. So it doesn't count April as having a qualifying payment. Although you made two payments, both of them they received in May. So you never got April counted. Counting one month. 
yet. So you, th- those are the si- types of things. So people think like, oh, it's been 10 years. I've been paying this whole time is, well, you got to go back and make sure you get all 10, you know, all, I know, 120 credit, 120 credits for the amount of payments that you did. Just paying 120 is not enough. You got to do the paperwork with it too. It's wild. Yeah. That's probably where people then give up and they say, you know. Yeah, there's, there's actually, and right. this is part of the reason where I think that, um, I don't know, you probably won't like me after this. Um, I oh, do I have a financial advisor. I have a, a flat fee financial advisor, um, which that. is $1,000 a year. And one of the things that he does is fight <laughs> these kinds of fights for me um, to make sure that the 12 payments for the year all get counted. Um, and, you know, he'll get on the phone and do the whole wait list thing. And then when he finally gets gets through to somebody, then he'll call me in and then I'll, I'll you know, he, he gets permission to talk on my behalf. And then he, then he fights with the people to get my payments qualified. Um, and I, it's, you know, I realized that uh, having a financial advisor is not the most popular thing in, in amongst uh, Bobblehead folks, but it's really worked out for me. Um, it's worked so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and. I think I come on here and yeah, I do talk bad about financial advisors a lot, but I do tell people, uh, especially people where they're seeking sort of retirement planning advice or something that's a little bit more complicated than your standard, you know, buy an S&P 500 index fund. You should talk to a fee-only fiduciary advisor, someone that either charges you a flat rate or an hourly rate, preferably not yeah, asking somebody management. Think, I think but- if you could, you could clarify because fee-only is a lot different than fee-based, right? Um, and that, yeah, yeah, I, I gotta, I can't, I gotta be careful with how I pick my words, um, <laughs> because then uh, people will be jumping on and saying, "Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I got, I, I gotta, I gotta." No, I think, I mean, you did it right. I mean, I agree because that, that's that's one of the things that I, I you know, my advisor is um, uh, fee only. It's just a thousand dollars a year. We break it up at two fifty for per per quarter, and that's it. Yeah. No matter what what he's doing or what's you know, he's never tried to sell me anything. Exactly. Um, because that's that's the relationship he does. He doesn't have to go any further than that. No, of course. And if, if you just sit back and look at the value that your financial advisor providing you, if it costs, say, what is it, was it $1,000 or how much was the amount? Yeah, yeah, so, 1000 well, Let's say it costs $1,000. And, and you're going to have him, say, for 10 years. He's going to be worth, he's going to cost you $10,000. But on the back end, he's your insurance policy to make sure $300,000 is evaporated i mean that to me yeah. is is a winning i mean i i would be hard pressed to say that's bad um of course is it uh actually i'm gonna say it's the most eco- economical way too because if you did this on your own wasting your man hours to make sure all this happens i think that's gonna be worth more than a thousand dollars so that might be the most economical way to do it is have a professional in your corner who's sort of working on your behalf and your interest and making sure that uh, you know you get that uh, student loan debt. Uh, for yeah, him. yeah. I and mean, this is almost exclusively what he does for a living. It's like a that's a boutique shop that just yeah. works with physicians to do this kind of work. Very interesting. Um, and I, I wanted to, to to go back and just talk a little bit about um, ex, uh, college expenses. And you know, I think a lot of listeners might might think three hundred thousand dollars for a college education that's a lot of money. He must have went to some go to school. I I, I did none of those things. Um, actually did four years in the military before matriculating into college. So I had the Montgomery GI Bill, um, which covered my undergrad. I went to two years of community college and then two years of state public school. And then I went to my state public school med school. Um, So it's literally the cheapest way I could have done it. 
Like I couldn't have taken any less out in loans. Um, I mean, 300, I, it was, so when I first got out of med school, it was just over a quarter million dollars. And I probably had um, the least amount of my class. Uh, so having 300, 400, even half a million dollars in uh, medical school debt is not unusual. Um, I'm probably one of the luckier ones, to be honest. Wow. I mean, that's eye-opening. I, yeah, I, people, I mean, I, I just went to school and I got a simple business degree. So it cost me like 48 grand or I don't remember what it was now, but I guess it's, we don't talk about the problem that the student loans have caused and, and sort of, I almost want to say they're trapping, you know, uh, students for a, a lifetime of, of basically repaying debt. And I, it goes back to if you read of any Jack Bogle's work, you know, he was while he was a capitalist, he was always a fan of um, of uh, not wealth distribution, but almost somebody having sort of uh, rights to basic human rights, such as uh, uh, whether it's um, uh, medical or whether it's uh, education or whatever the case may be. So I think, yeah, I mean, there's a problem with student loans. I don't know if you knew this about me. I don't think I've shared this before, Matt, but I used to be, um, this was back after I graduated college. I used to work in collections for a firm. They're out of business now, but they were contracted with the Department of Education. And my sole job was to collect on defaulted loans, uh, U.S. federal government loans. And that's what this company was established to do. And this company was incentivized to uh, basically collect money from from people that defaulted on their loans. Now, uh, I didn't work for this company very long because one, I didn't morally, it didn't align with the stuff that they were doing. Uh, but two, I got to talk to people on the phone, people every day that took out loans and they didn't end up in the field that they took out the loans for. So of course they didn't you know, take out 300,000, but they might've taken out 10,000, 15, 20 to try out college or to try out a vocational school and it didn't work out. And now they're stuck with this uh, sort of burden that's non-bankruptable. They can't get out of it. They can't pay it because it's either pay your student loans or put food on, on the table. And some of these companies um, were so vicious and so, how do I say, heartless that, you know, they were willing to take, you know, money from, from people that had to feed two or three kids like single moms. And that stuff really broke my heart and it hurt me. And um, it was the first taste that I got how dangerous uh, loans can be. But it's also a point that we live in a country that, you know, the cheapest way to, to get in a medical field is by taking out $250,000 worth of debt. Think about, um, and you probably know this more with, with your colleagues, but think about how many people will be indebted for the rest of their lives uh, for trying to basically do something that they love and that they're passionate about. And I think that's really where uh, the problem stems and why are we incentivizing, you know, schools and state schools to, and I don't know how yours was, but mine was a state school, but uh, the Dean had a golden toilet in his office, right? Like why are we, uh, and you mentioned the hospitals that have the golden elevators, why are we incentivizing, uh, you know, the prices of these things basically growing exponentially while the return, at least for me, I, I know for other degrees, it's probably better. But for me, I could have done what I'm doing today without a degree, right? So why are we incentivizing people go to school uh, and, and raise up 
the prices of, of school only to then have them come out into the workforce and either graduate at a time like I did where there was no jobs or you're competing with people that had 20 years experience on you or in your case, maybe there is jobs, but uh, you know, forever paying down 300,000 if you didn't have this uh, forgiveness, loan forgiveness program would really be probably the biggest hurdle in, in, in you building wealth long-term. It'll make it almost impossible. So yeah, I think that's where the bigger conversation and hopefully there's going to be changes with this where you know we'll be working towards a better society where education is more of a, I want to say more of a right than, um, than anything else. But what are your thoughts on that? If you, if you want to share any, um, I've kind of given yeah, you, you know, I think, but uh, I think, uh, first off, I want to reflect on what you're talking about with, uh, with, uh, John Bogle talking about some of the kind of, uh, things that we would describe as basic human rights, uh, uh movement. I, one of the beauties of, of YouTube is, although you know, I didn't know anything about Bogle when he was alive is that you can watch speeches and talks and interviews with him. And, you know, there's just hours and hours of, of him talking about things, talking about like benign things like the, uh, how he started Vanguard and kind of, uh, what, what writing his thesis at Princeton was like and all those sorts of things. But then there's also some, sometimes when he tells stories and, 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 and jokes and things. And I remember at one point, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but he identified as the most capitalist socialist ever. It was something to on a, on a play like that, where, um, he, he, he spoke about that. Um, but just to kind of, to, to give you a, a great example of the, of how odd the system works um, about becoming a, a, a physician in, in America. So in America, there's multiple kinds of med schools, uh, basically uh, people who make MDs and DOs. And for all practical purposes, they're the, they're the same thing. And there's a certain amount of med students graduating every year. And to practice medicine, you have to, after you're done with medical school, you have to go to another level of training known as residency. That's between three and seven years or more. Um, However, the government controls how many residence spots, residency spots there are a year. They do this through funding through CMS, Center for Medicaid Services. There are more med students graduating than there are residency spots. So you are guaranteed to have at least some people each year who take out these hundreds of thousands of med school, med school dollars and whatever and don't have a place to go. They don't have any training. They're called, we call them unmatched as a match system to, to do that. And on top of that, there's this whole, uh, whole other system that I wouldn't even talk about where basically you can train in other countries for the purposes of practicing in America. Most of these are in the, uh, in the Caribbean, so they call them Caribbean med schools. And those are even more expensive and aren't covered through federal loans. Um, and those people then have to vie for the residency spots. Um, so we have these people who carry MD and DO titles that just don't practice medicine and have hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. It's wild. That's how the system works. <laughs> works. Yeah. Mind blown. Mind blown. I mean, that's yeah. one field that I thought that, you know, the degree would be worth it where you're going to, you know, at least not have to worry about finding a job. But wow, yeah. I, I can't imagine. I mean, what, what do you how does that person that that goes through that experience even then begin to uh, piece yeah. together and pick up the pieces of their life, knowing that they have now, you know, this burden above them? I mean, they it makes them hard for them to ever, I don't care how much you invest, right? Even if you, you can find some extra dollars to invest after you pay all your bills, you're never going to get ahead that way. So, yeah, I mean, 
I think the broader, I think the bigger discussion is, is the system itself. And I do agree with you. I mean, I, I just having been a, a debt collector for a short three months, I get, I got to see it firsthand. It was eye opening. It was shocking what uh, these companies were doing. And this is just from the debt collection side. I can't imagine, you know, uh, what other people that actually went to school, completed school, and, and are current on their bills, what they're going through, because maybe they're working a job that they didn't need to even go to school for. Hey, man, this has been an eye-opening conversation. I appreciate uh, all the uh, input you gave here. This is something that I didn't know about. So Matt, just so I can put in the show notes too, and so our listeners know, what's that website one more time that uh, they can go to to, uh, to start this process and get more information about getting their federal loans forgiven? Yeah, so public student loan forgiveness is organized through myfedloan.org. All right, so that's myfedloan.org. And I will be checking out this website uh, uh, after this recording because now my curiosity has been peaked. But uh, Matt, thank you so much for, first of all, taking the time out today. I know you're uh, very busy and you got your hands full. So thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to me, be my first ever honored guest. Uh, it's been a pleasure on my end and thank you for your continued support. Uh, any other uh, final words you want to give to the uh, listeners and when can we expect you to make a return guest appearance on the Monkey Finance Show podcast? Oh, that's, that's a great question. First off, Mookie, thanks for, so much for having me. You know, I'm, I'm such a fan of yours and, and the kind of work you do. And I wish you just the, the best of continued uh, success. Um, you know, I, I think that if, if I could say to anything, anybody out there, just make sure that you're taking care of your tax advantage investments first, um, maxing out your uh, 401k, therapy B, um, your, your Roth, et cetera. Um, make sure you do that before you go and uh, putting money in your in your in your taxable because I think that's a that's an easy easy mistake uh, mistake to make and compounding over time that 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 cost from your loss of taxes is going to be huge so make sure you put it putting it in the right kind of right the right place um, you know so when I when I can come back well we'll see maybe maybe I'll make another appearance if um, uh, after marijuana legalization, maybe, maybe <laughs> that, maybe that, that would be sense. a very good episode. So this one, we're going to title how to get $300,000 of student loans forgiven. Next one I'm going to title, uh, when, when we get you back on is how to become a millionaire off the MJ sector. So, <laughs> I mean, clickbaity. Yes. But I mean, potentially it could be true. We'll it see. could be true. could be true. Yeah. Hey, well, Matt, thanks again for your time. Uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if you guys can please do me a favor and drop a rating on the podcast and a review, I will read them live on air. I did check before this recording. Nobody left a review since the Dan. Uh, so if you do want your review read, make sure you drop it on the podcast. As always, guys, have a great rest of your day. And remember, move obstacles, keep investing. 